time for breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is a crowded table of wounded children, parents, spouses, caregivers, and weary souls. Together, we join in honest conversations about the behaviors and challenges of parenting and working with children who have experienced trauma. There's always room for one more at the table to share in the stories, science, and healing as we learn to better understand and care for each other. We are a table without shame or judgment because life can be hard and lonely, and we all know that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I'm Stacy. I'm a mother of seven children and have fostered for over 13 years. As an RN and former public school teacher, I quickly realized this type of parenting was not taught in a textbook or class. Let's learn together to parent different, not harder. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. Welcome, welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. I am your host, Stacey Gagnon, and I am going to introduce my guest today as Doug Dolan. Doug Dolan has been in the recovery, rehabilitation side of things for how many years, Doug? Uh, a little over 10 years now. A little over 10 years. He um, is a COO of Recovery in the Pines, which is a Christian rehab facility located in Prescott, Arizona. And so I am going to let Doug really give you some of his background as well, because, you know, I could give you all the letters and the things behind his name, but I want Doug to just introduce himself, how he does maybe to those coming into his program. Thank you. And thank you for this opportunity to be able to participate in this conversation. So as you mentioned, I am COO and co-owner of Recovery in the Pines. I actually tell people we're more than just a recovery program because what people have as kind of this model or what they believe about recovery programs, we go way beyond that, which I can get into more later. I was born in Japan. My dad was in the military. So I was born outside a naval base there. And then we bounced all over the United States with his job. And so lived in a variety of states. I started drinking at the age of 14, blacked out from the very first time, fell instantly in love with it from the very first time, started doing marijuana at 15, nitrous oxide at 16, remained a a blackout binge drinker after multiple arrests and almost killing four people that I finally made the decision to get well. And so I've been sober since April 19th of 1997. Wow. What a a journey. As far as you're getting well, was there some contributing factor to that? There there definitely was. So there were certain external factors which can always play a role. So as I mentioned, I almost killed four people. I was actually on a business trip. I totaled a car up in Northern California while I was on a business trip and under the influence. And I'm lucky I didn't kill the other four co-workers who were in the car. So now initially my job told me that they were going to fire me. My parents told me, you've told us multiple times before you're going to stop. We can't help you. You need to go away somewhere and get help. I was already tens of thousands of dollars in debt pre-DUI. I'm going to, you know, then add additional costs post-DUI and dealing with all the legal issues. Part of my sentencing was to go back to jail. And I had already had multiple like overnight arrests and drunk tanks and things of this nature. But this time, I had to go to county jail outside of Oakland to Contra Costa County Jail, which is the number one most violent large jail in the state of California. And so I had all these different external factors, but actually the main reason why I got well is because I had been crawling out of my skin on a regular basis, just absolutely hating myself with hopelessness 
and despair, even though I was getting promotion after promotion after promotion in work and externally, a lot of people thought my life was going great. But internally, I was crawling out of my skin at war with myself. And that's the number one main reason why I chose to get well. And so you were functioning then. You were you were not homeless, sleeping on the street. Yeah, I lived in Laguna Beach. I had a beautiful ocean view. I worked for a computer memory company that um, at its peak was about 250 employees doing 300 million in sales. I started as a box boy in the warehouse and within five years, I was a VP reporting directly to the owners. But halfway through that trajectory, I was still a blackout binge drinker. What do you wish people understood about addictions? What do you think is, is something that you just wish like, man, if people just realize this, You know, that's a great question. A lot of people have preconceived notions about addiction. Some people it's, hey, I picture the homeless person or the wino on the street. Whereas I was the high functioning individual that I had seven promotions in my first two and a half years of working at that company. I was the golden boy in the company that they had no idea that it was crawling out of my skin on a regular basis. And so one is don't assume What it always looks like on the outside is that there's these overwhelmingly outward, you know, signs like some people will picture, hey, a meth user will have all these pockmarks all over their face and they'll be missing teeth. I know business owners. I know highly successful people who have been addicted to meth that externally you wouldn't be able to see the signs. So one is watch the preconceived outward notions. Two is don't assume that it's a matter of choice and just a matter of will, that you can just will your way out of it. It does change you. It does impact you. It changes the brain function. It changes dopamine production. There's so many ways in which it changes you. And the third thing is, which you know, I'm glad that we're having this talk is so many places don't focus on the trauma. They just try to get somebody to stop using the substance. And all that does is put a salve on the symptoms. It doesn't get to the root of what's really ailing them in those situations. And I'm so glad you brought up the trauma because obviously this is podcast is trauma for breakfast. And we are really speaking to a lot of parents and families who are dealing with kids from hard places or adults who have adult children who are struggling with substance use disorder and those kind of things. And so can you speak to us about how would you define trauma? Yeah. And that's a great question because what I've also seen people coming through our center is people have kind of these warped ideas about what trauma is. Some can go to just get over it. Nothing's traumatic. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, don't worry about it, to others shift to things that may produce some negative emotions, but then over-catastrophize those things and then call them trauma. You know, at its very basic, I guess what, what we look at relative to trauma is what are those events that overwhelmed your coping skills and have now changed the way that you perceive yourself, perceive the world, and how you engage life? Right. So if you go from you were a hopeful person to now it shifted you to being hopeless and I have no value and I changed the way that I engage myself in life, that's a traumatic response. I I love a, a quote by Gabor Mate, and he says, trauma is not what happens 
um, on the outside. It's literally what happens on the inside of you as a result of the trauma. When you're dealing with kids that have had early adversity, we call it complex developmental trauma, which mm -hmm. means the trauma occurred when the child was least able to weather that kind of stress. And it's when the brain is developing. So it actually changes the brain in a way on a developmental level across the lifespan. And so I'm going to guess that a high majority of your population have experienced mm -hmm. complex developmental trauma or trauma that's occurring before the age of two or three. Yeah. And so I, we would see that to be relatively true. Uh, the only hesitancy I have in that. So one of the things that we do is we do ACE assessments, mm -hmm. adverse childhood experience assessments. You know, as you're aware, that's a rating system on a score of zero to 10, zero saying I have no adverse childhood experiences, 10, I have them all, which are things that are repetitive often. You know, did you, were you often, or did you feel often that you were unsafe or that you were unloved or you witnessed the abuse or the abuse was against you? You know, like in my situation, I have a zero score on ACEs and yet I became a blackout binge drinker because there's other contributing factors relative to that, right? And so one, you wanna take a look at those developed during childhood and some that may even be developed, as you said, up to two or three that the individual themselves may not remember at all, but it has changed their development, right? And then there are other things of PTS where maybe situational or impact things that could happen during childhood or later on in life. But a high percentage have some kind of impact of trauma. You mentioned Gabor Matei. I've heard some of his talks. He says he believes 100% of people who have addiction issues have trauma. I'm not sure I fully see that because I even look at my own situation, I, I was blessed. I have phenomenal parents. My parents have been married 56 years. They raised seven kids. My dad's always had a job. I've seen them drink once or twice in their whole lifetime. They never did a drug. There was never trouble with the law. They treated each other well. They're devout in their faith. And yet I became a blackout binge drinker. Well, and you know what? It's funny because I have that question asked a lot, especially when, when working with, this, with the inmate population and they'll say, Stacey, I don't have any trauma. So what's my excuse? And I'm like, ACEs aren't an excuse, right? right? Exactly. The reality is this is, and I tell them, I'm like, that means you have less of a hole to crawl out of that. You know, when you're not having to deal with not just substance use disorder, but early childhood trauma and all of the adversity that happened then that you have less to have to process and deal with. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because there are lots of parents out there or families out there who are thinking like, what did I do to cause this? And we're not looking to point a finger. We're not looking to give an excuse, but we are looking to say, Hey, sometimes you got to process the trauma in order to have treatment be effective. And I know for my family and for us that some of our children are, have gone through treatment and the medical model in the United States right now is let's do medication. Because when we look at mental health, especially in kids, we see that we diagnose off of symptoms, right? So we see the symptoms and the constellation of symptoms. And then we say, okay, these symptoms, this kid is ADHD. These symptoms, this kid needs this, right? Instead of actually figuring out what's causing the symptoms, which ADHD and trauma look very similar in kids, right? And if you actually look 
the most over medicate, well, I would say over medicated, but the most medicated pediatric population yes. is children in foster care. And I mean, it is substantially more medicated than general population. Mm -hmm. So then my question is this, what are we medicating? So I would love to hear from you, Doug, because I believe that addiction or substance uses are a way to medicate internal pain. And I believe so much of that is why the pain. So how is your model different in treatment? Because I'm a big fan of, we don't kick the can down the street by doing a drug or a medication and don't actually deal with core issue. Yeah, I'm gonna try to condense um, what I say here as much as possible only because there's so many things that you mentioned that are key, huge, critical points, which I absolutely agree with. One is really quickly, we have a medical system that is quick to medicate and slow to get people off of medications. Now, that doesn't mean medications are necessarily bad, but we do have an overprescribed, misdiagnosed society that we quickly throw labels on. And as you say, yeah, if I only have a short term with an individual and I label this individual as ADHD when it's really a PTSD or ACE type of trauma situation, all I've done is given that child a diagnosis that they think they're stuck with for life. We're going to keep them on medication for life because that's what they may believe that there's their only way of dealing with it. And we've completely missed the mark. So some of the things that we do different, one is long term. Too many programs are 30, 60, maybe 90 days. Most people are engaged with us for a year. And you can see certain developmental things over the course of a year. You can build certain rapports and understanding and do a much deeper dive on work and also put the new coping skills or the other changes into effect while under supervision that you can help somebody navigate through that while they're then taking back on the complexities of life, which is whether you're re-engaging the family, going back to school, back to work. Most programs go from let's quickly stabilize them. Let's give them a little bit of education and some medications. And then we're going to reverse that trend on them quickly and put them back out into the world. It just misses the mark on so many different things. The other thing that I, we also take a look at is looking at people going down basically two primary paths, either a compulsive path or a curious path, which is what are the triggers or cues that I may have? I better be able, I need some help in identifying those, but what are the numbing agents that I go to? And I regularly speak in terms of numbing agents because we also have to be careful. Like in my case, my favorite numbing agent was alcohol. But we've got to watch switching numbing agents because alcohol isn't the only numbing agent. We can use drugs, but we can use sex in an unhealthy way, food in an unhealthy way, the pursuit of money or the spending of money in unhealthy ways. We can use anger. We can use devices, all kinds of things to numb ourselves out. Now, all we've done is distracted ourselves from that which we may have needed to address we stacked up consequences against ourselves because we may be building an addiction to that short-term pleasure or that short-term relief, as well as we may have, again, relapsed or 
have other things that are consequences. And we only stay stagnant in our own personal development, which usually leads to some kind of greater guilt, greater shame. And it puts us back to the top of the list again. And we just get on this insanity merry-go-round as we get sicker and sicker. And we're rewiring the neural pathways. We're rewiring the dopamine production versus shifting them off onto a curious path. So part of what we do is not only do we stabilize the individual mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, we then need to get into the educational aspect. Some of what led to this, truly led to this, like we're talking about, let's differentiate out the ADHD from things of trauma. You know, if you have a kid that is in a traumatic situation, has a high A score from his family of, you know, his family of origin, and then he goes to school and the teacher says he can't pay attention, then labels the kid as ADHD and gives him a medication. Well, of course, the kid can't pay attention. He's got a war zone of a situation going on at home. It's going to be hard for him to pay attention, right? The education is about what are the contributing factors, the true contributing factors. And the education is also about teaching them a new way to live. Too many programs just stabilize, do a little educate, teach you how not to die, but they don't teach you how to live. And then what we go above and beyond really quickly on that is we, because they're here long-term, we walk with them to watch them implement these things day in and day out, and then help them develop these into their new habits. So this is their new way of living, plus also help them define what is my purpose in life, which is really who is the best version of me. We also really quickly uh, look at four key areas, the mental, the emotional, the physical, the spiritual. And so we're looking at the whole individual. We're not just treating one slice of them because holistically they've been impacted or they may have issues in other areas of their life contributing to them choosing to go to numbing agents. So I'm a parent of a 14 year old, Doug. So speak yes. to me like that. Um, let's say I have a child that is dabbling in um, drinking and marijuana mm-hmm. or vaping yep. and I am looking at this from a, okay, he's not ready for recovery in the pines and, or I can't afford treatment, but what would you tell that parent? Yeah. One is connection. You know, part of the illness as we progress in substance abuse or issues of poor mental health is we start detaching from our loved ones and we start detaching from ourselves. So one is how do we build stronger connections with them? Because then we can see more things going on in their life and open up hopefully healthier channels of communication that we can have those dialogues. The second thing is, is to look at, is there trauma going on that we may be blind to or unaware of? You know, is your kid getting bullied at school? Is your child feeling like they have low self-esteem? Are you witnessing changes in them where you're seeing that, you know, they're not as engaged in life or they're having troubles with mood regulation? A lot of people also, I would really challenge on, you know, there's too much of a comfortability in our society with drinking and smoking marijuana. And it's like, let me tell you where that's going to lead to. And the study's not just based upon what I've seen in people coming to my center, but studies that the government has done, other, you know, institutions of higher learning or other medical centers have done. We've seen anxiety go up. We've seen depression go up as the concentration in THC has gone up. You know, again, I mentioned I started smoking marijuana back in 1985. Well, the THC concentration back then 
and predominantly the leaf form, because that's really what all that was available, was like two to four percent. The leaf form now is anywhere from 15 to 27 percent. Plus, then you get THC in a lot of other forms, either edibles or waxes, shatters, liquid that you can then smoke through a vape. Those will have THC concentrations of 60 to 90 percent. What that's doing on the changing brain at an early age, plus it's more caustic than what society is really aware of. Those are things you're going to want to pay attention to. Engage your child. You're going to want to try to create barriers in between them and the negative things that they're drawn to. But you want to open up a lane towards what's the healthy thing? Where's the healthy engagement? Where's the healthy help? Don't go to what some parents want to go to as tough love saying, that's it. I'm going to cut you off from everything, basically. Like, I'm not going to pay for certain things and I'm going to take things away. Well, just taking things away from somebody who doesn't have either the maturity or the life skills and may also have trauma and struggling with a dependency or an addiction on something isn't going to help them. That's why you always want to open up a lane for where do we want to direct them to get help? I'm so glad that you said that because you know what I think is when we look at our kids and we look at something like them vaping or choosing drugs or, or, or irresponsible or risky behavior, it drives fear in us first. And when adults have fear, we move to control. So I'm going to control your world when in the reality is, is you're not really getting down to the core of why, what's the why behind this and being able to address that with that child. And so I would love to know as a parent, what is the point where it's beyond my scope as a parent to help? What's the point that I need to be looking at a recovery facility? I need to be looking at something like you're rolling out with recovery in the pines because this isn't, I'm not managing it within my home because I have parents reaching out, asking that type of thing all the time. Yeah. And, and great question, you know, and it's something that really quickly in my own family dynamic, like I mentioned earlier, I come from a family of seven kids and I have phenomenal parents, yet I became a blackout binge drinker, and there's a picture over my shoulder. That's my younger brother who OD'd and died at the age of 30. And I also have a sibling that's had multiple suicide attempts. And so my parents asked, what did we do wrong? It's not necessarily that they did. They didn't do anything wrong. We're just wired different ways. You know, I was one of the signs to look for addiction is, do you have significant euphoria under the use? Like I blacked out from the very first time of drinking, but I was absolutely in love with it from the very first time of drinking. And so there's just different factors. You are going to want to take your own inventory as a parent. Like, is there instability in our household? You know, how do we create consistency? How do we create genuine connection between us and our kids? But at the end of the day, it may be beyond you. And that's where knowing like, hey, this is beyond me. I need a mental health professional. I kind of liken it to, I also do work at different times with special needs individuals. So if you look at somebody who has autism, they look like everybody else versus somebody who has Down syndrome, has certain facial features or certain you know, vocal patterns that would indicate quickly that individual has Down syndrome. But if you go to give somebody who has autism a hug, they may freak out because to them, their processing in their brain is I'm under attack. Well, don't take it as guilt and shame of, well, I need to just either force the hug on them, remove the hug from them. Maybe I just need to get some help to understand how does their brain work? It's knowing your own capabilities 
the consistency in the house, but it's also understanding the one factor that I think we all deal with is sometimes our kids, kids will listen to what a stranger says more than what their parent says, even though we're both saying the same thing. It's finding that therapist or counselor that they can build a rapport with who will also work through with them on getting into action. Getting into action is, is a huge part of it too. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about my teenage boy last night and I, we call him hug, hugging porcupines. They get to those gawky, awkward, cringy stages in life. Right. And yeah. we tend to, as parents start thinking that they need us less because they, and they push off because they're so influenced by peers and, you know, in their mind, everyone's always staring at them and judging them. And my parents are goofy and we have been very intentional to say, when I know you don't want to hug, but moms have to have a hug every single day. And mom needs you just to sit here and be, you know, I've got to, even if you don't want to talk, you just have to sit by me for 10 minutes, almost like making it playful and curious and awkward. But at the same time, my kids didn't start opening up about things. Um, or I do games with them where every time I pick them up in the car, I'm like, would you rather, and I have some weird question, like, would you rather lick a toilet, you know, make it gross humor. Cause that's what yeah, they right. like, you know, yeah, yeah. or like, I mean, just all these things. And they, they are, they get in the car now with ready for that. And because we tend to get into this rote thing of how was your day in second grade. And in third grade, my kids, they will wax on eloquently for an hour about their day, but they hit those gawky, cringy years. And it's almost like the pushback. And I think we have to expect the pushback and expect we have to push in in a different way in order to communicate. And it can't just be, I'm tired of you always on your device. I'm taking it away. I'm shutting it down. I'm taking away all your social because you're going to be with bad kids. You're, you know, having conversation with them so that you maintain relationship. Well, and, and, you know, the high school years are such interesting years. One is they've done the studies on the brain and how we're more risk takers at that point in time. So just realize that's part of the dynamic. The second dynamic is people are going from, well, mom, I've always followed your rules under your way of doing things. And I'm now trying to express and find my own identity. So even though you may have done all the right things, I need to push back to see, am I just doing this because this is how you train me or am I choosing this? And so it's building that sense of agency. It's building that sense of control that an individual can feel like they have. And now we've got to transition as parents more into a certain degree where let me advise you on some things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's almost like controlled failure. Like I'll give you some room to fail, but not to the point where it's going to become detrimental. That I've got to put some serious barriers around, right? But let's give you some room to play here and some figure some things out. And let me just advise you. And if you see the things I'm advising you on, you've gone and experimented with. And it's like, wow, mom, you were, you were right on that. They're more likely to listen and you can keep that engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what it's so interesting what you said, because we definitely live in a society where I'm seeing a little bit more of the helicopter parent role where, you know, hey, I'm I'm setting up a play group at my son's college. Any other um, college kids want to go hang out with my kid? Like some of that weird. And I'm like, you know, my goal as a parent is that that my children leave my home and when yeah. they do that they're able to stand on their own two feet. And I think that that's we have to be careful of that. And I, I really appreciate you saying that 
giving them more autonomy to fail in a space that's safe. And so let me ask you this, because you mentioned earlier, and I I just want to go back to this, how the brain is changed and how it takes more than the 30 day program, which is typically 30, 60, 90 days is what we give people. Mm -hmm, Could mm -hmm. you speak to how the brain is changed? And also how long do you believe Doug, it takes the brain to get back to a space of regulation in order to function well? You know, great question. And there really isn't one answer for everybody. And what I mean by that, like there's the old adage, like, you know, hey, you can change any behavior in 28 days. And it's like, that's not the no statistics have proven that's not true. Can you potentially do it? And the range is actually anywhere from like 28 days to 256 days. And so there's different factors to take into consideration. Let's say you have client A and client B in the program. Client A has no ACEs. Client A has no other medical issues, was raised with a strong sense of agency in life skills. Client A has a high IQ versus you have client B who has a lot of ACEs, client B who also has other medical issues that uh, are having impacts on the brain, client B that also has maybe a lower IQ or had poor schooling, they're not going to transform in the same way. Because as you said, which I also agree, you're not needing to process through as many things for client A as you are for client B. And they're not competing with each other. And that's where, you know, we have to watch, well, I have to be well inside of 90 days. It's like, well, I'm sorry, it doesn't always work that way. The other factor too is if Client A, like I was, I was broken when I went into my program. I did not need people to convince me my life was bad and I hated where I was at and I got after it with all kinds of intensity. I'm going to have a different experience than somebody who's like, well, it really isn't that bad. And I have other things that I'm still not willing to give up. I just want your help in making the consequences go away, but I don't want to work on things on changing me they're not going to have the same transformation. The other aspect too, and this goes back to like you held up your phone. We have to watch screens as numbing agents. They've done scans, the dopamine production, which is typically known as the pleasure neural transmitter. Oh, that's kind of a misnomer because it's actually the precursor to adrenaline to get us up and go, to go achieve something or to go get something, whether that's food, sex, things of that nature. How the brain changes in dopamine production when they do brain scans on somebody who is a daily heavy gamer, like video games or online games or social users, their brain scan looks similar to a heroin addict's. Now we need to go through, in essence, a dopamine detox. I've got to let the brain heal because we've tried to keep the brain artificially high stimulated on dopamine production, and our brain has just dropped baseline on it, and we need to allow the brain to heal in order to start to feel those pleasures or those joys in life that we used to have in other things. So you need to do that detox. You need to look at, are there any physical factors and changes in the brain? Are there trauma factors that are changes in the brain? And so that can change How quickly does a brain heal? Can somebody come out of the fog, in essence, inside of 30 days? Yes, it happened for me. And then I was much clearer on now getting to work on things. That doesn't mean I was well. 
Other people, it might take them longer to get through working through all those other issues before they have that clarity and start to build that agency on the work that they can do in their lives. And really quickly, one last thing. One of the formats in recovery is known as MAT, which is medication-assisted therapies. Here's where a lot of places I see get wrong or people's impression of it is give me the medication, but I don't want to work on the therapies. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then you're missing the mark. Again, we have a medical society that's going to be really easy at getting you on a med medications, but should we stay on those medications for the rest of our lives? Or do we work through with therapies? The medication helps suppress the overwhelm or where we cannot focus so we can work on the therapies that are going to create agencies. Doing one without the other is not helpful. And I, I really appreciate you saying that because, you know, whether it's MAT, which is like Suboxone or Methadone, where, where you're, right. you're, you're, it's a controlled substance that is given to help people come off. One of, one of the ways that I would teach about that is, you know, when you, when you are dealing in substance use disorder, it's almost like the pedal is to the floor and the car's in neutral and your brain's just revving, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't pop the hood in that moment and start working on the engine. Right. I've got to help that. I've got to help that car get back to neutral or yeah. the fog to leave in order to pop the hood to start dealing with what's at the core. But I do think as a nation, we do that all the time. Like when, when you look at like even antidepressants, the whole idea is that we don't even know the long-term effects of antidepressants on people, but yet we prescribe them across the lifespan mm -hmm. instead of saying, Hey, at this time you can use this in order to get the car in neutral or the brain in a space where it's able to function and deal with what's going on and get the tools to feel well. I, I really appreciate you saying that because I do think it tends to be an easy fix to think, let me give you a medication. And I see so many parents out of desperation with their children moving up that medication ladder, trying to find the pill, the thing. And I don't know that there is the thing. I think it it's going to be perpetually working on something to try and figure out what the pain is. These are not one dimensional issues. They're multifaceted issues. In that scenario that you explained, like, okay, the parent wants to help their child, gets them on medication, and society and the system has kind of taught us now they're fixed or that's what they need. And it's like, no, that that's likely the start of things. That's not the end of things. Like there's other dynamics that we need to get into to take a look at what was contributing that. I'll use as an example, like I mentioned earlier, I talked in terms of numbing agents. For somebody to heal, they have to be willing to give up the things that have made them sick. We might assume in like a recovery setting, well, that means the drugs are the alcohol. You need to give those things up, but there's other things you need to give up as well. Part may be you need to give up being dishonest because dishonesty has made you sick. And this is where the parent that's looking for help for their child you can't give somebody a pill that suddenly makes them honest. There's work that they need to do. And did they become dishonest as a way to get their needs met or they felt it was a survival mechanism? I have an adopted daughter, by the way. I adopted her at the age of 14. She had already gone through a lot of trauma, both in her family of origin and also in the foster system by then. 
So in certain ways, dishonesty was a protection mechanism for her. You can't give her a pill to now suddenly make her understand the value of honesty and what that's going to lead to for longer term mental health. And so this is where families are going to struggle. Like I gave them a pill. Why are they still depressed? Well, if you're dishonest enough, you're going to have chaos. You're going to have depression. You're going to have anxiety in your life. It's just going to build up and you can't medicate your way out of that if that's all that you're doing. Well, and especially when, okay, and just using your example again, okay, when the dishonesty is a survival mechanism, the survival brain is always going to trump the thinking brain. So you're not going to say, think someone or cognitively talk someone out of something. You have to dr- address that survival brain. And, and a lot of that is through the therapies that we choose, because honestly, when we look at traditional therapy for trauma, Mm-hmm. It's talk therapy. When trauma occurs developmentally at an early age, talk therapy is not reaching that basement brain. We mm-hmm. have to look at what we call a sideways approach or a bottom up approach to therapy, where we're actually dealing with that part of the brain instead of trying to cognitively talk to that inner child who's hurting with the adult thinking brain. You know, and there's a couple of different factors to that. One issue is they've done plenty of studies to show how our memory deteriorates over time. So if you're trying to talk somebody through something, they may not adeptly or accurately remember the events or even have been fully aware of the events that were going on at that time. So how do I rationalize what was happening in that scenario? Secondarily, if I have that brain still in development and you know, I don't have the maturity or experience, I may not be able to weigh it out in the context of certain things. Talk therapy, I believe talk can help in conjunction with other things. But it is like what you're talking about, like from the gut up, like, hey, how do I stimulate that awareness of and understand the, you know, this, what's happening sensational wise in my body, when I'm exposed to some of these different things, which can be through somatic experience therapies, it can be through role playing and different scenarios. It's like, oh, my goodness, or EMDR is another one that can be used for people, you've got to come at it from a different angle. But I believe you can incorporate some aspects of talk then in conjunction with that. Absolutely. Well, I want to ask you this. I saw this quote and I want you to unpack this for me. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Yeah. And, and you know what, and this is where, so I do a a series of different classes and I'll often start with, let's just get to the definition of the word, because it's interesting how we might have a warped definition of what the word is. And so we engage it in an unhealthy way. Like what is, you know, what it really is an expectation, which is different for than for hopes of things. First off, the only person I control is me. And so if I automatically have expectations of other people and I haven't communicated those expectations, and if we haven't agreed to what those expectations are and they don't live up to those expectations, not knowing they're playing by certain rules that I've preconceived, they're not going to hit the mark on what I see as how things should be. That unrealized expectation is going to often lead to a resentment. And I've set somebody up to fail. And in some cases, we even do it with ourselves. We have certain unrealistic 
expectations of ourselves. Like somebody going through treatment, I should be well in 30 days. It's like, where'd you get that expectation from? And your resentment towards yourself can lead to greater guilt, greater shame. If you're also dealing with trauma, you're going to potentially activate and further entrench that trauma even more that you're going to cause greater future problems. And so there's a difference between awareness and acceptance of things. You know, I am aware of certain things and the acceptance doesn't say I have to like it, doesn't say I have to agree with it, doesn't say I have to be stuck with it. But let me name something, what it is, so I can get into right action about it. The expectation is often the shoulds, the the belief of the way things should be that we don't get to, but how are they? Let's not should all over everything. Let's get to how are things, get aware and accept things as they are. And again, doesn't say I have to like it, doesn't say I have to agree with it, doesn't say I have to be stuck with it, but now I'm more adept at getting into right action about it. And so your kids may have certain expectations of you. Mom's always going to be this way without understanding who knows what kind of day mom just went through. And if she's really struggling with something and acts out of a certain way, you now have not met their expectation. They may have a resentment towards you. And we might not have that open dialogue or take that moment to see, well, wait a second, let me get curious about it. Like, mom, something's off here. Like, you don't seem like you. What's going on? Instead of expect, you're always going to do the right thing or always act a certain way. When, when I read that, I was, I was thinking, and I really, I applied it in a lot of ways to those who have experienced that early adversity mm-hmm. and tied it a little bit to some self-sabotage and things like that. And so I'm wondering if you would be willing to, to go down that road at all. So for me personally, by the way, in addition to being in recovering from alcohol and drugs, I'm also a recovering perfectionist. And so my family set a high standard and a high standard is not necessarily a bad thing. I actually think it's good. Aim high, stretch yourself beyond your comfort zone, expand that comfort zone. And so, but I took it to perfection and because I took things to perfection and because I can't hit perfection, I had expectations. Hey, because of the way I was raised, because of who my parents told me I was, I expect I can be perfect and I could never hit that market. And I had resentments towards me I had resentments towards them for feeling like they lied to me because you told me I could do all these great things and I seem to be failing at these things that it brought up resentments. And when it goes to recovery thing, by the way, in our 12 step literature, it talks about the number one thing that causes a relapse is resentment. And that's where we just need to look at, like, where do we have these biases, these prejudices, these beliefs of expecting the world or other people are going to be a certain way. And when they aren't, because it's never going to always add up, the world's not always going to be the way we want it. It's not, people aren't always going to be the way we want it. In our program, I often tell people, like I help people map out a definition of the best version of them, give them a sense of purpose, give themselves something to drive on and focus on that and not I'm bad, but I have a higher calling that I want to focus towards. Part of what that does is it changes expectations. It gets things more into a realistic pattern. The other thing that it does is it takes my view off of always looking at me in the negative and getting hopeful towards what I can work towards becoming in the positive. 
It also helps strengthen things of mental health and clarity that I now better see people as they are and I can accept them as they are and I have a stronger sense of agency. So we have this saying lately that safe spaces. What we have to watch is if there's the expectation that everybody's going to make spaces safe for me, that's not realistic. And if you develop a resentment, well, you must not love me, mom and dad, because you didn't make this space safe enough for me, which just may be you're having a negative emotional response to something. This is about how do we make people safe in basically all spaces? You're going to deal with some negative emotions, but how do you develop those coping skills and that agency to grow into the best version of you versus everybody else needs to make me feel okay and make me feel safe? At some point, you have to be responsible for the, the safety of a space, right? You have to be able to have a sense of agency or be able to advocate for self, be able to say, hey, I need this in order to be successful rather than expecting other people and then getting resentful when they don't follow through. Doug, I love to ask my guests, what are they currently reading or if they have a book they would like to recommend? Yeah, actually, uh, the current book does happen to be on this particular topic. And I actually selected this book before I was asked to participate in this podcast. But I recently got Peter Levine's In an Unspoken Voice. Peter Levine, for people who don't know, has done a lot of work relative to trauma. But other books that I'll get into, there's Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, who's a former uh, Navy SEAL who now has he does consulting work and he does educational talks for organizations on what are the things that he learned as a Navy SEAL that can apply to real world situations of, again, taking ownership. Uh, another one that I love on this particular topic is The Body Keeps the Score by mm -hmm. Bessel van der Kolk, who has some great information about how do we carry you know, trauma in our bodies and how we can't differentiate as human beings the difference between a thought and an experience and how does that reactivate trauma in our bodies. Bessel van der Kolk, that book, I could, oh my goodness, I like it, it's highlighted all up. So a really interesting book. I don't know if you're interested in, um, Dr. Bruce Perry just wrote a book with Oprah called What Happened to You? I just posted on the TLC um, website or our Facebook social media, a quote from him where the science now is showing the first two months of life mm. having the greatest impact. So if you have early adversity without the relational buffers in the first two months of life, yes. you have poorer outcomes than someone who had the first two months with um, high relational buffering and yes. then the rest until the age of 12 horrible adversity. Yes. So it is fascinating to me how that attachment and attunement, it absolutely sets that point of stress regulation in someone. Great book. And I actually wrote down the extreme ownership book because I'm going to check that out. Yeah, a couple other quick ones. Another recent one that I did was The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. So that's a really good one on people's attachments to things and where does that cause conflict in our lives. The Surrender Experiment is another one that I have from him. Uh, Alone at Dawn, which is actually about uh, a former uh, combat controller in the Air Force, Special Forces in the Air Force, Medal of Honor winner. I like studying things of people in high extreme situations because although that one is about warfare, 
we as human beings sometimes are under mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical warfare. It might be in a setting where we don't understand it, but I like those types of scenarios to see in certain cases, how do people overcome or what kind of work do they do to strengthen themselves mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Well, and, you know, as a mom of seven children, I like to read about like from FBI hostage negotiators or Uh Navy SEALs because I feel like I live a life similar to them. (laughs) Well, Can't Hurt Me is a really another another good one. That's by David Goggins, who's also a former Navy SEAL and amazing in so many different ways. He comes from a highly traumatic background. A lot of instances of childhood trauma and things like that. But what did he rise up to and what kinds of things has he accomplished in the face of those adversities? High resiliency. So, well, I am so grateful, Doug, that you joined us today. And is there um, how do how do people find you on the worldwide Internet? Yeah, they can either go to our website, which is recoveryinthepines.com. Or they can email me at Doug Dolan, so D-O-U-G-D-O-L-A-N, at recoveryinthepines.com, or I'll even give out myself, which is 928-910-9608, that please feel free to reach out to me. I'll be of service in any way that I can. Awesome. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a great week. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you all for joining us today on Trauma for Breakfast. And we hope that you will recommend us to all your friends. And remember that you can find us anywhere you download your podcasts. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. We are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse, and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.